This is Michael Weaver and Jonathan Washburn from Cleveland, Ohio and Indianapolis, Indiana. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. We've got wonderful weather this morning. I just went for uh, an hour-long bike ride before the podcast, and I'm feeling awesome. Awesome. Now, uh, tell me, when you do your bike ride, are you doing it like in the hills, or is it more uh, like suburbs? Yeah, so there's not a lot of hills right by my house where I currently live. I am. Uh, we are planning on moving here in the next year or so, where there's a little bit of a hillier area. But right now, I'm just driving around, you know, suburban, uh, suburban roads, getting to know my my surrounding neighborhoods as well as possible. Nice. That sounds like a lot of fun and something that I I personally need to do myself. So, um, and it's good to get your mind out and get it cleared the first thing in the morning. That's great, man. Um, so, hey, uh, want to start off with an interesting topic. Um, can you tell me the most interesting story? You know, you're a, a mortgage lender for those joining us for the first time. Uh, tell us the most interesting story that you've seen thus far in the industry and, and uh, what what you thought of that. Okay. So I've got a couple. I'll, I'll save one today. We can save one maybe for, you know, for future podcasts down the road. So Sounds good. I was working, I was working with a guy last year, um, purchased a home. It was one of those... Um, wonderful experiences where the entire loan process went smoothly. Um, almost too smoothly, you know, cause like you're, you're, you're always waiting for, for something random to happen. Well, right. nothing random happened. Appraisal came back on time at good value. Inspections were good. We got everyone's documents when we needed to. We, we, we submitted the, the loan for the clear to close a week early. We got that clear to close like three days before closing Everyone was exciting. We actually moved the closing up one day. So we closed a day before we were supposed to close. Everyone's feeling good. I'm feeling good. Realtor's feeling good. And we go to fund the loan and the loan doesn't fund. And the loan doesn't fund. And usually, you know, when we, when we request for the loan to be funded, it funds within two hours. Sometimes on very rare busy occasions, it might wait like three or four hours, but all of a sudden it had been an entire day and the loan had it funded. And, you know, I'm reaching out to my funder. I'm like, what's going on? And she says, I don't know. I funded the loan. And we reach out to the title company and they're like, nope, loan hasn't been funded. We haven't gotten any of the money yet. And everyone starts freaking out because wire fraud is a big thing. Um, and you know, we were double and triple checking. Okay. You, you sent it to this exact number, right? You sent it to this exact account. Yes, we did. And all of a sudden late in the day, about seven hours after we requested to fund the loan that morning, we get a call from basically the U S government. <laughs> um, and the federal reserve had stopped the wire because my buyer's name apparently was the same name as this Mexican drug lord that was on FBI, CIA's most wanted list. No way. He had, yes, he had the exact same name and they said, hey, uh, we flagged this. We're going to need some extra proof that this guy that is buying this house is who he says he is and he's not this 
guy from um, Mexico that's on all of our lists. So we very, and of course, the, the funny part about this is our, our buyers had, um, they had signed in the morning. It was like a Thursday. They had signed in the morning and they were taking a trip to Las Vegas to celebrate their new house. And they were going to move into the house the next Monday. So they had signed in the morning and then they got on the plane and flew out to Las Vegas. And so we're calling them frantically on Friday, like, Hey, we need you know, birth certificates. We need, you know, all of these different things that we would have never had to ask for before just to prove that you are who you say you are. And it was kind of frantic. The loan did eventually fund once we realized, Hey, it's just, you know, he had the same name. Um, but that was very easily the craziest uh, loan situation that I've ever encountered. That's awesome. So, uh, when did it actually fund? Was it that Monday or did you get it done before the weekend? Uh, they, it funded the next Monday. Yeah. So they, they, they waited, you know, we got everything late in the day on Friday. Um, and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll review it all on Monday. They reviewed it all on Monday. They were satisfied with it. Loan funded on Monday and everything was good. That's great. Hey, um, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, a happy ending and, and, uh, it's, it's pretty funny that that kind of thing happens, uh, even today with, with all of the precautions that we have speaking of wire fraud. So that's something that's on uh, a lot of people's emails and it's certainly on a lot of people's radar. Uh, what can you tell us about wire fraud? Um, you know, how, how prevalent is it and how easy is it for someone to do it? And, uh, you know, who, who are the kind of targets for it? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent, as, as you know, you know, um, with the things that happened to our economy last year. Um, you know, oftentimes when you have a little bit of a downturn in, in the economy, you'll have an uptick in, in crime. Um, and so that, that was something that, that sparked a lot of new wire fraud alerts that I got last year. You know, I got more wire fraud alerts last year than I'd gotten, you know, any year, probably all the years previously combined because it had become so big. Right. Um, basically here's how it works. You know, these, these crooks are very smart. Um, when, when you, um, go under contract on a house, right? You're a buyer. And you say, oh, yeah, we just got our contract accepted. And it's, you, you know, it's very common to you know, go on Facebook and be like, hey, we just had our, our offer accepted. We've looked at 37 houses, but this is finally the one, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you, you announce to the world that you're about to buy a house. Um, maybe you go on Twitter. You... Now everyone knows that. So, so, so Steve's, they, you know, that they see this. And so they know that, hey, if you're buying a house, probably a few weeks later after your announcement, you're going to start getting emails from the title company. Hey, this is, you know, this is what we need from you, things of this nature. And then at the very end, um, the lender is going to fund your loan like we just spoke about, right? So, right. you know, you, you go, you get your loan fully approved. Everything is good. Now we are clear to close. You go to sign the papers. And once you sign those papers, the, um, you're going to send a check for your down payment, closing costs, anything extra, right? You're going to send either a check or you're mm-hmm. going to make a wire transfer to the title company. And the title company is going to give you basically a bank account number. Hey, this is, this amount is more than $10,000. So we want you to send 
the amount that you that you owe, right? Your total cash to close. We want you to send that to this bank account, a uh, bank account. Transfer it to this bank account. Right. And they will often. Most title companies will send you this information in an encrypted email, right? Um, yep. Or they may even they may even let you come sign and give you that information in person. And then after you sign, you can go to the bank and make the wire transfer. Um, but, you know, we're not always super careful. And so you may get a, an email that says, hey, congratulations, we're clear to close. Please submit your cash to close amount to this bank account number. And you think it's from the title company, but it's actually not from the title company. So when you go to make your $20,000 deposit, you know, transfer payment of, for, of your down payment and closing costs, if you send it to the wrong bank account, you're out 20 grand, right? It doesn't go to the title company. It goes to the thief and it will, you know, it can be very tough to get that back. Yep. Um, so the, the main people that they are, that they are trying to steal from would be the buyer, but also the lender, um, you know, because they they are trying to get you know because when you make that that what that deposit of your down payment and uh closing costs we then will also send a wire transfer to the title company for the entirety of the loan right so we might be sending a three hundred thousand dollar payment to that title company and these are trying to get that from us too right so it is something i have i have heard about people in our industry getting duped by wire fraud and sending the $300,000 funding to the thieves instead of to the title company. And then, you know, the bank is out $300,000. So makes sense. Yeah. It's very important when, you know, when you're down at the end, you know how stressful buying a home is and you, you almost just want everything to end. You almost want it all to be done. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you're like, oh, okay, finally, here, what's the amount? Okay, sure. All right. Yep. Yeah, go to the bank. You're not really paying attention. Hey, I'm supposed to send it to this account number. The bank says, okay, cool. They send it that account number. And if you're not paying close attention, then you can be out a lot of money. So that's kind of what, what's going on in the wire fraud world these days. And the way to, the way, the way to protect against that is just to make sure, you know, do all of the same things that you do when you're trying to scan emails for whether they are authentic, right? Make sure you're reading closely the, the email address that it's from. Make sure there aren't any weird links in in the body of the email. Make sure everything is spelled correctly. All those good things. Um, but you know, always it's it's okay. Like, call that title company, right? And don't use the phone number that's on the email. Right. Look up the <laughs> look up the title company online. Call them. Say, hey, I got a I got an email from you guys that I'm supposed to to wire the money here. I just want to make sure that that's the correct place I'm supposed to be wiring the money to. So those. That's a good way to protect yourself from that ever happening. I always think too, uh, if if it starts off with "my dearest beloved," I'm not going to respond. <laughs> right? If there's a uh, if there's a if there's a prince from Africa that is in desperate need of some money, let's uh, let's let's put our guard up immediately. Well, yeah, and that's that's the other funny email that I get is, uh, "Hi, friend, I've been locked up," and it's uh, it's like, well, what prison <laughs> is giving you access to an email as opposed to, <laughs> to giving you the phone call? <laughs> right, so, right. Um, anyway, it is it is kind of interesting, and, and and you actually feel sorry for those people you see on TV, uh, you know, that they've been scammed for relationship money and and everything because these mm. people are, you know, they're they're invested more so than what we were just talking about with the houses. I mean, their time and everything. But um, so, what steps do you as the lender go through to make sure that the title company 
is in fact the title company. Do you do? Uh, do you have someone that does that at your office that that actually picks up the phone, calls a title company, verifies each and every you know transaction, or uh, something different? Yeah. So we we do a, t- a couple things. You know, most most title companies these days are using um, like third party. Uh, sort of portals to make all of their communications, right? Yeah, it's so super annoying as, as a realtor because if you're driving or <laughs> you, you're trying to get and you have 14 different title companies and they each want you to have a separate password and to, to just email with them. And, and so it is it is frustrating <laughs> to have to remember, you know, ABC title company, what was my password for that? Oh, absolutely. No, it, it can it can for sure be a hassle. Um, but at the end of the day, you, you understand why they're doing it. Now I do, it yeah, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> right, so that's that's one thing that a lot of title companies are doing to to address it. Um, but yeah, we, you know, over here across country, you know, our loan processors um, and our closers before before we make any before we do anything there at the end involving money, we will always make a quick phone call just to verify everything. You know, because uh, I, I'm a text guy myself, right? I, oh, I yeah. much prefer texting and emailing than than phone calls most of the time. But there are certain things that you just can't get any better than a phone call, right? Right. Get dialing, dialing that person directly, just making sure. Um, so, so that's something that that my team typically does, and I know a lot of a lot of lenders are, are doing you know, similar things, just especially with the with the recent rise, with the recent uptick in fraud. You know, we're we're, we're just trying to be a little extra careful compared to maybe how we how we used to work. Makes sense. Well, um, okay. So last time we talked in a previous uh, conversation, you mentioned, um, you know, what you would do if you were in charge of the uh, industry and the in the lending industry, and that you uh, you see that there's kind of a um, almost a greedy uh, a greedy uh, buyer out there that has you know more homes than they could possibly manage, and sort of sucking up all of the the properties that people need to to live in, and that's that's sort of a problem in our industry. So let's dive into that topic a little bit more. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, um, you know, and and try to see it from a different perspective, but. Um, why don't we kind of rehash that a little bit uh, in, in further detail? Because um, you mentioned there are folks out there that have, let's say, 25 or more properties. And they basically can go and, and buy other properties with cash. And it makes it very difficult, in some cases impossible, for someone getting a loan to uh, make the make the deal happen. And, and so you're seeing that as a big problem. So uh, let's, let's hear a little bit more about what you think about that and, uh, you know, so the problems that you're seeing with it. Sure. So the, I, I want to be clear that, you know, the, the first thing I want to say here is that um, here is a problem that I, that I recognize, but mm-hmm. I don't really have a great solution for it. Okay. Um, I think this happens a lot, right? You know, we, we, we identify a problem, a political problem, right? And yeah. everyone on both sides agrees. Well, yeah, we agree that that is a problem. And then when you get into the, well, how do you fix it? It was like, <laughs> well, this world is kind of messed up and there may not be a perfect fix. And yeah. every fix is going to create three new problems, Right. right? So I want to I want to say that you know when you asked that question last week, um, you know we don't script our conversations ahead of time. Oh right? yeah, like, right. It's, That's it's what like, makes hey, fun. Let's, you know, right? Exactly, exactly. So when you asked that question, I was like, okay, here's a problem that that I see. And then you know once once we got off the podcast, I started thinking, man, 
you know, personally, I. John, I lost you. Um, you said man, oh, sorry, and then it just cut out. <laughs> oh, sorry. Can you, can you hear me again? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, when I, I said, I, I thought to myself at last week after we got off the podcast, I said, you know, man, I personally would love to own several rental properties. It's a great <laughs> right. way to build wealth. It's a, it's a great re- retirement, um, you know, a great re- retirement program for a lot of people. And, you know, I definitely don't want to be seen as, as hypocritical, you know, down the line. If, if one day, you know, 10 years from now, I have several rental party, properties myself and people are like, hey, didn't you say this was a problem? It's like, yeah, it is kind of a problem, right? Yeah. So here, here's the specific, the, the specific issue is that right now, we have a lot of people that want to buy homes and homes just aren't available for them, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, you have to kind of stick, take a step back and ask yourself some philosophical questions about the world and about America and uh-huh. about like humanity, right? Like the, the, the simple question, does every person quote unquote deserve to own a home? Right. Right. You know, a, a lot of people might answer that question differently. Um, so, but I just see this, you know, as, as, as two guys, as you and I, that, that work with people every day, that work with a lot of first time home buyers, you know, that, that work with people that are, are trying to buy a house. And you and I understand that one of the, one of the best ways to build wealth for yourself in this country is to be a homeowner. And then we see a lot of people that actually qualify for a home. Uh, you know, they make enough money. They have enough money saved up. You know, they have good credit scores. Like these are the people that qualify under normal conditions to buy a house. And they can't because so many of these homes are being bought, you know, purchased with cash by investment groups and, and other things. You know, that's where I, I, I recognize the problem. Uh, I wish there was something that we could do to address this problem. You know, this is... This is this is quite different, I think, from what was going on 20, 25 years ago when it was when the assumption was, yes, everyone deserves a house. So therefore, we will give everyone a house whether or not they uh, (laughs) qualify for it. Right. Right. We went down that road in this country and it led to disaster. All the foreclosures and short sales and everything that happened to to the to the housing market in the, the mid 2000s was because we gave people that really honestly should have never been able to buy a house. We gave them the opportunity to buy a house. Um, but now it's almost like we've gone the other way. Uh, it, it's, we, we have more people than ever that are actually qualified to buy a house and want to buy a house and they just can't because the inventory is, is, is just not there. So how do we fix this? I don't even think that necessarily investment groups that are purchasing 30 and 40 pop properties are, are the biggest problem. I just think mm-hmm. it is a problem. And so I actually think if I was, you know, if I was in charge of the U S housing market, which is not even really something you can be in charge of, <laughs> yeah. I, but like, <laughs> you know, the world. I do think, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I do think I would, I would make it harder. I would try to make it a little bit harder or perhaps go the other way. Um, give more of an incentive to to um to sell homes to people that are going to live in them as their primary residence 
I don't really know how to do that though. Right. Cause we, well, we already have a do. lot of incentives to try to do this. So banks do. So, um, when, when bank properties came on the market, they, they would give a first look. And for the first seven days, you had to be owner occupied, uh, for your offer to even be viewed. And I feel like that was great. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't at the time I, I really hated it because we were investing. Um, but we bought a few bank properties over the years that, uh, you know, we ended up living in and, um, but you had to sign an agreement that you'd live in there for at least 12 months, um, Mm -hmm. to, to, to have it. So that, that actually is a, something that could be done. And I guess kind of counter to, to the, uh, um, people that are available that, that, um, or homes that are available. My thought is we would probably be looking to rent a home. You know, same situation as you. We're looking to probably mm-hmm. build. We'll sell and then rent and then build. Um, there's nothing to rent either. So right. in the same breath of, well, there's no homes for people to buy. Well, there's no homes for people to rent either because they get sucked up. And if if a property management group gets 25 properties, that's that's a, an influx in that sort of bubble of people that can rent the house. You know, there's now 25 more properties available for those folks as well. Um, as well as how many, how many jobs are created with 25 rentals? You know, is that one or two people that are running that? Is it, is it no job creation? I mean, at some level they've, they've got to be, um, uh, an increase when you, when you raise the number of homes to the number of people that have to work on it and certainly problems, right? So it's likely if you have rentals that your rental property is going to need more servicing than your residential property, just because people typically don't take care of it as well. And, uh, so that's probably even more jobs because you've got more plumbers, more HVAC and, uh, you know, more contractor calls. So in essence, I, I think, Almost there's more work and involvement uh, through a community by the the people that are buying up the properties as opposed to the individual homeowners, I think. That's kind of the the side that I would see, too. No, I I think you make some good points. Um, I'm in the same boat, right? There's nothing to rent over here where I live. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) I remember when I I moved, when we moved from Charleston to Ohio, there were only four homes available to rent in the city that we wanted to rent. Um, yeah. And we, we put off, we, we tried to get two of them and they, they pulled my credit. They did everything. I had you know great qualifications, but they wouldn't even let me buy there because I was starting a new career. Right. I didn't have a good enough job history for them. And the third one, the only reason they let me that they, they gave us the chances that I, I offered, I said, Hey, we'll pay six months of rent up front. Nice. If you let us have this yeah, house. Right. That's awesome. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll do it. But that's what we had to do to get. And, and you know, even that we ended up spending $400 a month or more on that rental. That was half the size of our wow. house that we lived at in Charleston. So, you know, I think, I think the big picture, right. I think the big picture is this, the, the problem with the housing market is not renters. Right. It's right. not, it's not people that own rentals. So sure. the, 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 the most important, most fundamental problem is just that we simply don't have enough homes. Right. And you know, this is something that COVID last year killed new construction. New construction is one of the only things that can help address the, the inventory shortage, right? Yep. Because, yep. you know, pe- people are living longer than ever. They're not dying and moving out of houses, giving, making them available. We have more people hitting the workforce right now, you know, uh, more 30, 31, 32 year olds than we had, you know, five years ago. 
Um, so these are people that want to buy homes and we got to build, but new construction was killed last year. And if you've gone to Lowe's recently, you've seen what the price of lumber is. Oh, new construction sure. right now is, is more expensive than ever. So it's, it's just going to take a little while. It, it honestly, it might take several years before we are able to adequately address the housing shortage, especially, you know, especially in certain areas of our country that are, that are growing, um, you know, growing faster than they, they had been anticipated. Yeah. And that's actually what I was going to ask next is, uh, in the coming months, uh, with the home buying process based on the historical data, you did an awesome, uh, YouTube video that, uh, people can, can check out on, uh, you know, the millennials and being that certain age, go through that process and what that looks like and why, uh, you don't think that we're in a bubble. Yeah, so I, I would say I do think that houses are probably a little overpriced, okay. but I do not think that we are in a in a bubble that is about to burst by any stretch. Um, and, and you know, here's why. So, I, I, like I said, um, so the average first time home buyer in our country is 33 years old, right? I bought a house before I was 33, but the average first time home buyer in this country is 33 years old. So, a really good thing to do track um, what the housing market is going to look like is actually to to track the sheer number of 33-year-olds that exist in the country, right? And it's not just okay. 32, 33, you know, you can look at 31-year-olds and 35-year-olds, but like that, you know, that five, six-year age, age group, you want to look at that. How many of these people exist? Right. You know, interestingly enough, this is not something that gets enough credit or uh, you know condemnation, if you will, for hurting the housing market in 2006 and 2007. If you look back at 2006 and 2007, we actually had way fewer 33-year-olds in that time period than we had previously because of some things that had happened in our country back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if so, so basically, what you can do is you can take the current year and subtract 33. Subtract 33 from the current year and go back. And so we're at 1988. And you can just look. How many babies in our country were born in 1988? And what's interesting is that from 1987 to 1993, we had a bit of a baby boom in our country. Right. We had a lot more babies born between 1987 and 1993 than we had from 1981 to 1986. And so what that means is that right now, at this point in time, we have more people turning 30, 31, 32, 33, and looking to buy their first home than mm-hmm. we had five years ago. And now this is important because new homeowners, new homeowners are the singular group of people that affect housing inventory, that change housing inventory. Because right. think about it like this. If you have 10 homeowners that all decide to buy new homes. Well, all 10 of them could just trade homes, for lack of a better term. So if you have 10 people living in homes, they could all sell their homes to somebody else and buy each other's houses. You would have no change to the housing market. You'd have the same right. number of homes available as you had before. But if you take 10 homeowners that want to sell and you add two renters that want to buy their first homes into the mix, now all of a sudden we have 12 people that need houses. Mm-hmm. The only 10 homes that are going for sale. So first-time home buyers are actually go an influx of first-time home buyers are actually going to, it will, 
take inventory off of the market. And we can actually track inventory. We've been tracking inventory, the housing inventory in this country since 1961. And ever, it is right now, at this day, lower than it's ever been since we've been tracking it. Wow. There's a lot of reasons for this. One of the biggest reasons is we have all these first-time home buyers. And like I said, it's, it's not going to stop this year. You know, this is something that happened from 87 for the next five, six years. Wow. So you're going to have, you're going to have, I think, three or four more years of an influx of first-time home buyers. Mm-hmm. Additionally, COVID caused new construction to tank last year. So one of the best things to do to keep up with new homeowners is to build new homes, but we're behind on that. And, <laughs> you know, and you had a lot of people that were planning on selling and moving in the last year. And then COVID made them rethink everything. Oh, you know, yeah. I talked with so many people that were like, yeah, I was going to sell. I was going to buy a new house, but you know what? After what happened last year, I'm pretty comfortable with my current monthly payment. I'm pretty comfortable with my current home. I don't want to stretch myself too thin, you know, things yeah. of that nature. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, that's looking at like that simple demographic chart. Um, it's, it's telling me that this is going to take another three or four years to even out because we only have more new homeowners coming into the, coming into the market. We're, we're very, very far behind with new construction to mm-hmm. try to keep up with that. And, you know, one other thing that one other thing about this specific generation, right? This, this 87 to 93 generation, um, a lot of research has actually been done to show that we may even have more of these people ready to buy right now than previously, because this is the generation, you know, this is the generation that you and I are in. Yeah. We got out of college, <laughs> 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, when things were bad, mm-hmm. when the housing market was, was, was in the tank, when we saw our parents underwater on their homes. And so a lot of research has actually gone to show that like, yeah, usually the average first time home buyer is 33, but a lot of people still buy at 25 and 26 and 27. But our generation did this less than ever because when we were 23, we saw our parents underwater on house and we were like, dude, I'm just going to rent for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it, we have, we have more 33 year olds than ever. And a higher percentage of those 33-year-olds are going to be buying their first homes because they were scared to do so when they got right out of college, more so than previous generations. So, yeah, I do think that the, that prices on houses, on, on homes, are a little overpriced right now. But I don't see this as some sort of bubble that's going to come crashing down anytime soon. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe give it three or four years and prices will start to sort of level out a little bit. I, I, I don't anticipate something happening like what happened in 2007, 2008, where everything, you know, everyone lost so much money on their homes. Of course, I have a strong reason to not want this to happen. It's very possible. I'm looking at all the data with, with rose colored glasses, but you know, that's just, that's just kind of what I see. And that's, that's what I believe is, is, is happening right now. Sure. Well, that goes into my next question, though, is uh, if there's another systematic failure, you know, what do you think that looks like? So you're you're kind of going against the grain as as uh, a lot of people are, are thinking that we are in a bubble or that the prices are super infra- inflated and that they are going to come down. But uh, in your mind, if there was something 
that was going to, to tank us. COVID didn't. Uh, sure, it put us behind, but but it didn't do anything really negatively uh, in our industry because for every one person that says, I'm fine, I'm going to stay put, there's five other people that says, no, I, I want to I buy a house right now, and they can't. So what do you think that that would look like if, if this was all to crash down? What do you think it'll take and uh, you know, for that to happen, and, and how would that look like? That's a great question. So I, I would I would look back at history to try to see what caused these things in the past. Are mm-hmm. are those conditions starting to replicate at all? A um, couple things I do see. Um, people are paying more for houses than they probably should right now, right? And that's that's never a great thing. <laughs> well, let, let, right? me, like, let me explore that real quick with you. So they're paying sure. more than they should for a house, but are they paying more than they have for that house like they did in 08, where they, they did, they, they didn't make that much money, so they were overpaying. But in Correct. this instance, are they, because that's the way I always thought too, is well, you're paying $220,000 for a $170,000 house, you're overpaying for it. But at the end of the day, they still have that asset. The issue that I see is that some people, and now more than ever, they're they're paying a lot of the cash that they had reserved in, in one way yeah. or another, and so they don't have that support. If things do crash, they're still stuck at that higher payment. And if they lose their job Correct. for three months or six months, to if they don't find another $200,000 a year job or $150,000 a year job, and they, that was what they based their income on, they're kind of hosed. So, I mean, that, that's kind of just initial thought that I have, but what do you think? No, I, I totally agree with you. So when, when people paid too much for houses in 2007, and then the, the economy, you know, crashed and they had to sell, they lost their shirt, yeah. right? They lost everything they had. They spent $400,000 on a home that was only worth $300,000. And they, they sold the home for $280,000 when they still had the mortgage for three ninety. Yeah. right? Yeah. So they lost everything and still owed the bank one hundred twenty grand. That was a huge problem. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing today is... Most of the time that, that people are, are spending more than maybe the house is worth, mm-hmm. they're doing it from a position of strength. You know, I, I'm working with a veteran right now that paid 275 for a house that was listed at yep. 225 and mm-hmm. he paid that entire overage in cash wow. because he had that saved up, right? So let's fast forward a year and a half. Let's go worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. This house was only worth 225 and let's say the, the economy gets a little bit worse mm-hmm. and he has to sell two years from now and he can only sell it for two twenty, mm-hmm. right? What is he out? Well, he only took a $225,000 loan out because he paid that extra in cash. Now he's going to be out all of his reserves. He's going to have lost $50,000, but he's not going to lose his shirt in this instance. He just lost his safety net. Sure. And don't get me wrong. We <laughs> losing your safety net is a huge deal. But he's not going to be in the same position that the same that a, a similar person would have been 10, 12, 15 years ago when he paid fifty thousand more than what a house was worth. Makes and that's sense. what most people are doing right now. You know, a lot of people are moving from from California and they're buying homes in Indiana, in Ohio, in South Carolina, in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. They're selling their small house in California for six hundred grand. And they're buying a beautiful house. In Indiana, that's three times the size for three hundred and fifty grand. They're paying cash <laughs> yeah. for that. Well, let's let's say that 
two years from now, that house is really only worth 300 grand. What are they out? Well, they still have this asset that they paid cash for. Yeah. They're not losing their shirts in this scenario. If they have to sell it, they can get 300 grand in, in, in cash right there. So that, that's, that's one thing. Like, and, and I want to acknowledge it, right? That's a mm-hmm. big deal that people could be losing their retirement plans. People yeah. could be losing their safety nets. Um, that is a bad thing, but it's not going to be, in, in, from what I'm seeing, it's not going to be the same thing as what we had before. Okay. Now, there is something else that is starting to happen that is, you know, kind of giving me the EBGBs from, from what we had before. Um, you know, when, when, when COVID happened last year, uh-huh. we saw banks all across the country tighten things up considerably. Yes. You know, banks that would have used to gone, that would have used to go down to a 580 credit score all of a sudden overnight, we're not going below 660. Right. I had a, I had a customer saw, who offered, uh, they were only offered $150,000. That was the max that they could get on a home equity line, even though they were approved for more, their home was worth more, everything lined up. The bank only allowed them to pull out of their bank 150,000 cash, which was just, it was kind of weird for me. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, banks uh, tightened up the DCI requirements. They tightened up credit requirements. They increased down payment requirements. Um, and we all just held our breaths and waited to see if the housing market was going to crumble and it didn't. And in fact, it got better, right? (laughs) It got stronger. (laughs) So what happened is, you know, gradually over the course of last year, banks opened up their requirements again. And so we're pretty much back to normal, Mm -hmm. but in like the last six months, uh, the hard money lenders have started popping out of the woodwork. the, the hard money lenders that will do all sorts of loan programs that just kind of, these are the programs that they're making available and that you're like, man, this, this person really shouldn't be buying a house, but now there's a program available for them. So for instance, right. um, I got an email a couple, a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to say who, the, who the, the, the broker was, but I got an email from a, from a bank that was advertising a brand new loan program. Mm-hmm. It's a three-month bank statement program. They have no credit requirements, um, no DTI requirements, really. All they have to do is um, they're going to take three months of bank statements, and they're not going to source any of the deposits into these bank statements. So, for instance... You could get a, a gift from your mom for twenty grand yeah. in January, and then a gift from your dad for twenty grand in February, and then a gift from your sister for twenty grand in March. Mm-hmm. You get three gifts, none of which is your money or money that you are earning with a business or anything like that. You can just get three twenty thousand dollar gifts three months in a row, and they would look at you. They wouldn't look at pay stubs. They wouldn't look at W twos. They wouldn't look at taxes. They wouldn't look at anything else except for these three bank statements, and they would give you a loan under the assumption that you're making $20,000 a month. Now tell me what's, what's in it for the banks. I mean, uh, for them to get that and, and for them to risk that, why would they do that? Do they just, are they just thinking, Hey, the real estate market can't, can't get hurt. So we're just going to risk this. And if they foreclose, we've got this awesome asset that because it's a great seller's market, we're fine to have. Is that kind of what their strategy yeah, is? That's, 
That's exactly what it is. It's, it's twofold. It's, it's first of all, they're, they're obviously hitting you with a higher interest rate on that okay. than you know you would get for a conforming loan. So if on a conforming loan, you're in the high twos and low threes. Mm-hmm. For this loan, you're in the, the high fives and low sixes, which is okay. considerably higher. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, they, you know, they, they do need you to put 25 or 30% down okay. on this. So you know that, that is a lot of collateral they're getting up sure, front. Sure. And yes, just like you said, worst case scenario, this person forecloses in a year. Look at the housing market. <laughs> we'll take over this house. We'll have this asset. We'll probably make money on it. Yeah. So, and, and, and to that right there, doesn't that remind you of the, of the kind of stuff that was happening the in 2006, lending. 2007, 2000? Yeah I, yeah, I I would call it that, you know, almost. Yeah, it almost um, is. And, and there, there's rules in place to keep it from being as predatory as before. But still, you know, I look at this and I'm like, I, I don't think this person should be buying a home, you know, <laughs> this way. Right, but right. we have a market for it, and it's because these these hard money lenders are popping up and they're realizing, hey, look, even worst case scenario, this person defaults, we'll just take the house and we'll sell it because the housing market's so strong. And that's exactly how we started acting in 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, Be- Bank of America can't do that, and Cross Country Mortgage can't do that. But these these hard money lenders that that do the non QM loans, they yeah. don't have to to abide by the same rules, and they can do these loans. And so, um, yeah, so though, that's the thing that kind of concerns me a little bit. Mm-hmm. I see, and and that's where you know you and I, as you know, as as professionals in our field that people are coming to for advice. We just want to be be careful to explain all of the ramifications of, of taking out a loan like this, right? Like there is, there is a specific person that this loan would actually be quite good for. Right. Right. You know, you you have somebody that's, that's self-employed that, um, you know, maybe they, they just released a new product last year. And their business is booming because of it. And over the last three months, they have just been crushing it. And if you look at their cash flow and you, they've got, you know, good credit and you, you can look at this person kind of through like the old school common sense eyes of mm-hmm. lending. And you can say, yeah, you know what? Um, you'll definitely be good for this. And then you, you tell this person about this program and you say, hey, look, you've only had your, 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 your business for a little while. Let's put you in this program for two years, but over the next two years, you know, show just how much you made on your taxes, right? You know, you're, you're exactly. killing it. So, so claim all that money in two years from now, we can get you into a nice conventional loan, right? We can refinance you into a conventional loan, get you out of this bad terms. Like I, there is a person that that loan that I just told you about makes sense for, right? But you can very easily see all of the ways that that could be exploited. And if too many people do that, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, <laughs> this could be pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Well, um, you know, I, I definitely think that that's uh, something like you were saying, like we have to tell people and kind of advise them on, you know, which which loan processes are good or not uh, for them and, and which products are good for them, I mean. But, uh, yeah, that was – and that kind of leads me to my next question is, is – as a lender in your field, uh, do you think it's possible to, to do a nine to five Monday through Friday and, and still be as successful as you are? Like, do you feel like uh, you're able to hang it up in the evenings and on the weekends and, and spend time with your family and away from work? Or has this really truly become an industry where uh, you feel like you've got to be glued to your phone? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, <laughs> I got a lot of thoughts on that. I want to first of all say that that work life balance is very very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing one thing that I would say about my job is that so you know other jobs that are nine to five jobs mm-hmm. you are completely on from nine to five sure and then you turn it off at five right mm-hmm. i am like kind of always working but very rarely completely on if that makes sense <laughs> right well it because so, i i live that way i i get it 100 <laughs> percent. so it's, it's it's a trade-off you know i I do believe that in order to be a good and successful lender, I need to be I need to be available for the occasional eight o'clock phone call from a realtor or from a from a buyer. Yeah. Right. You know, most of the people that I work with to buy a house, they have jobs. And that means that most of the people that I work with to buy a house are working from nine to five. So sometimes they can't talk until six or seven or eight. Right. right? And so if I'm gonna be the guy that's like, nope, my phone's off at five, you know miss me with that, hit me up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be as successful as what I could be. But because most of my people are working from nine to five, I often have like time at 11 o'clock to, you know, sit at the, at the lunch table with my wife and kids and yeah. enjoy lunch, you exactly. know? And, yeah. you know, I have to have my phone there in case somebody calls me, but like I, I'm kind of passively working in those moments. Sure. And so I actually kind of structure my day. I almost work from like, nine to 11 and then four to eight. And I have this, like this time in the, in the middle where I'm like, I, I've got my phone on, I'm available to be reached, but I'm not necessarily sitting at my computer, you know, hammering away on things the way that, you know, I, I would have been if I was at, you know, another job that is nine to five. Yeah. I like um, it. Similarly, like our, our job requires us to be somewhat available on the weekend because that's when a lot of people go out to, you know, go out to buy homes and, and look at homes and such. Sure. At the same time, you and I are both men of faith and there is a day for both you and I that, that, that we do as sacred and uh, that we just choose not to do work on that day. And you know what? I know for a fact that there are sometimes, you know, I'm sitting in church and I get a phone call from somebody that wants to buy a house uh-huh. and I know for a fact, yeah, I'm probably going to miss this one. Yeah. <laughs> it's Okay. Right. It's okay for me. Right. Uh-huh. I, you know, I, I'm as available as possible, but I, I still want to communicate to my clients. Mm-hmm. Like, look, like I still am a person and there are certain times throughout the week that I, I just can't drop everything for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I choose to, to work. Um, I, I assume I could probably get a little bit more business if I was just on 24 hours a day, all seven days a week, but I, that's not really the life that I want. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are with that. Yeah. I often thought about that too, you know, is, you know, the leave it to beaver lifestyle is, is in, in our industry. I don't know that it's so attainable anymore. Um, especially with just how, uh, I want to use the word ravenous cause that's, it's literally how I feel sometimes is that I get pulled in a thousand different directions and, um, it, it is, uh, my people are great. I, I love every single one of the customers that I, I uh, deal with, but I, 
I look at their need as a screaming two-year-old. And, and that is, <laughs> I am going to drop everything that I have so that I can take care of your need. That That's how. So internally, I'm taking it as they're like, I need you, I need you, I need you. Um, you know, and, and so I, I love it. Uh, I certainly am... Uh, I am kind of over the whole drop what you're doing right now, though, because you have to show me this house in 15 minutes or it will be sold. And if you don't, I will call another realtor. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that, that's certainly uh, something that I, I'm kind of over. I do like the days. I, I remember them when I could plan. Uh, I could plan like a week out. You know, I'm going to show this person houses on Wednesday and this one on Thursday and this one on Tuesday, and and everything was just line itemed. You know, super smooth. And now, mm. uh, you know, I don't. I don't have that uh, any longer because you really you can't make the plan until the house gets on the market, and you've you've pretty much got to show it in in 24, 36 hours, um, or or you're going to miss out. And yeah, you're right. So you know, personally, my schedule is I don't work Friday nights. Saturday night. So, um, there have been, uh, instances where I'll look at my phone on Saturday night and see, uh, you know, Hey, we, we want to see this house. And, you know, most of the time, um, I actually have, I've actually never lost a customer, not one single person. Um, since mm-hmm. I started this schedule, I, I always just told them, Hey, I'm not available. Uh, but recently with, with just some th- different thoughts and stuff, I did get one of my agents who doesn't, doesn't hold the same faith that I do on, on that. And I said, Hey, you know, are you willing to cover, uh, you know, my customers that need to see a house during that time? And, um, you know, and so, so they're able to see that way that, that my customers are, are able to be taken care of. Um, I don't have to worry about it. Um, and also, it's it's not imposing my beliefs on some some other person, and uh, so I feel like that's kind of a good healthy mix uh, to to what I I personally do. But I certainly like to to think that we'll get to the the time in our lives, man, you and I, that uh, we will be able to, to go back to the nine to five because uh, I do I do look for that day that uh, we can go back to scheduling appointments far and out in advance, and it's not so. Um, so crazy, and that—that's you know what it really looks like. But I don't know. We may never get there. The world is is hustle and bustle. So um, you know, I've got uh, two more two more thoughts for you, and we've got just a few minutes left. What advice do you have for buyers uh, with buying power? And we'll start at two hundred thousand, and then people that are under a hundred thousand. Like what we're talking about is it's so difficult. Um, but what advice can you give? Because those people are still buying homes. We're still selling homes. I know it's really difficult to find a home under, um, in our area, the Arbor homes is, is kind of like the, the basic, um, most economical builder. That's a track home builder here, uh, locally. And you know, they're, they're now, um, almost every community is over 220 in Indianapolis. So, uh, pretty Mm. much if you want to build a home, it's, it's going to cost you that much. And, and just, uh, you know, just a month or two ago, you could get in at one hundred eighty thousand. So, I mean, the the pricing has has gone up uh, significantly. And uh, so, what advice do you have for those people that are that at that two hundred thousand or or even under a hundred thousand to to get a house? Great question. So, I would say um, the, the first thing I would try to do is to set is set the proper expectations. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is, you know, explain up front. Look. This is going to be tough. We may see 5, 10, 15, 20 homes before we get an offer accepted. Yeah. We want you to, we, I need you to understand that up front that, hey, this is going to be a tough journey and I'm committed to taking it with you. 
but it's very, very possible. It's very, very likely even that you're going to see six, eight, ten houses that you really want that you're just not going to be able to get. And if you, if you try to set that expectation up front, mm-hmm. it's not going to keep them from getting frustrated, but at least you can say, hey, look, we're in this together. This is tough, but hey, this is what we're doing. This is what the market is is doing. There is a house for you, and we're going to find it. Yeah. So just trying to set that proper expectation. Um, the second thing that I've heard, um, I've heard you say, I've heard, I've heard other realtors say, is like try, if at all possible, try to keep yourself from falling in love with the house mm-hmm. until you actually have the offer that's accepted. Right, right. Because it, it, you know, it, it almost it, it's 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 just like uh, if you walk in this house and you think it's the one, and you fall absolutely in love with it, and you start visualizing your furniture and where you're going to put your TV and where your kids are going to play. And then you don't get the offer accepted. It is so much more crushing when well, you've and, already done that. And think about that. Just just in that kind of analogy, I'm, I'm picturing. So in that price point, especially those folks are usually coming either right out of college or right out of a rental or, you know, in, in, in some reason, this is a big deal at that price point, especially for them. And you're telling them, look at this like your next, you know banana that you're buying at, at, at Lowe's, you know, or not Lowe's, at the Kroger, you know, <laughs> uh, look at, look at this as, as something that is, as a pair of socks, you know, don't, don't fall in love with it. Don't move your furniture and don't see your little kids playing in the background. Uh, you know, don't, don't look at it like that. Don't paint the walls. Um, look at it as a commodity. And, and yeah. then you're like, but we want you to make sure you pay top dollar. <laughs> you know, like we, we need you to write your best offer. <laughs> so uh, it, right. that's definitely a good uh, piece of advice, but it certainly is, is a difficult proposition, I think, for, for most folks. Well, and the other thing I think I would, I would try to explain is that um, most people, <laughs> not everybody, but most people really do think when they move, that like okay, this is the one. Oh sure, right? yeah. This is our forever home. Yeah. Um, and yet the the facts just show that the average American moves five to every five years. Right. Oh, every five years. And I remember, now, yeah. <laughs> like I remember when when we bought our first home in Charleston, um, we really we we were, we thought we were smart. We were planning. We bought a home that we could grow into. This could be our forever home. Had one extra we were bedroom. Five. <laughs> right. We were in it for five years and we moved. And when we, when we bought this house here in Menor, Ohio, three mm-hmm. years ago, we did the same thing. Oh, it's got the backyard that the kids can play soccer in, and it's got all this space, and it's got a basement. This is our forever home. Yep. And now we're buying some land right now, you know, uh, uh, a couple miles away to build mm-hmm. what we are assuming is going to actually be our forever home, right? But it just, it is what it is, right? So, yeah. so look at it. Try to look at this, just like you said, as a commodity. Am I going to get some use out of it? Are there some things that I can do to increase the value? I'm probably not going to be here forever, and that's totally okay. And yeah. because I'm probably not going to be there forever, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to have every single thing on my wish list. Mm-hmm. Does it have what I need right now, what my family needs for the next two years, three years, five years? Does it have those things? Okay, it does. All right, good. Um, and it, I know it's going to sound like I'm telling people that they need to settle. and Honestly, I kind of am. Yeah, like in yeah. this market right now, you're not going to get everything on your wish list for for less than the list price. It's yeah. probably just not going to happen. Yeah. So 
it's okay. You know, it's, it's okay to make a sound financial decision that winds up with you buying a Honda Accord instead of a BMW, exactly. right? It's okay to make yeah. that decision. Yeah. Honda's a great car. It's going to do a lot of great things for you. It's fine to make that decision. And maybe down the road, when you, when you, you get a little further in your career, you get a little further in life, you'll have the opportunity to buy that BMW and it'll be even more special when you get to do that. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, all right, John, one more thing. What are the positive thoughts from John today? I want to give you that, that, uh, you know, you kind of ended on, on that, uh, on the last topic, but I, you know, I sent you a text that I, I wanted you to, uh, think of something today that what, what is something positive that we can leave the people with because so much negativity, it's so depressing. And some of the, you know, like you said, showing 30 homes and getting let down, but, uh, what is the silver lining you got for us? My positive thought for today is that as, that as, uh, the country is opening up after this, you know, this COVID thing that we've gone through, we have the opportunities to be with each other face to face again. And I don't like it. take this for granted. You know, I, I, I feel like it would have been very easy over the last year to think, Hey, you know what? This whole staying at home every night and just watching Netflix is pretty great. And you know, there are some nights when I like <laughs> to do that myself, but man, you and I both get the opportunity today to go spend time face to face with real people. Yep. And this is just such an awesome thing. What a, what a great blessing we have to be able to do this. So take advantage of this, take your kids out, enjoy the beautiful weather, um, and just see each other face to face again and, and, and try to get, get your life back to normal. Cause we as humans, we need this personal face to face interaction. Yep. I like it. All right. Well, thanks, John. Until next time, we'll talk to you later.